In Session with Dr. Farid Hulakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Hulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Um, before I get into uh, the book of the week, as I was coming to the studio, I heard some very sad, heartbreaking news. Uh, depending on when you're listening to the show, it's Monday, January 22nd, 8 p.m. Los Angeles time. And just heard the news of the execution of Mohammad Ghobadlu, who was 23 years old uh, in Iran, uh, as is often the case with um, charges that are bogus and sham trial and all of those that we've unfortunately had to become accustomed to happening in Iran. And so I uh, just heard the news as I was coming into the studio and heartbroken, another young, just young, innocent soul killed for uh, no reason other than preservation of power. And uh, it's hard to even talk about it. But, you know, in the studio here, Fahud is here, and I see her, her tears in her eyes. Um, and she was the one that shared the news with me. And I'd seen people posting to stop the execution and then just heard the news um, as we were about to come on the air. So it's hard to focus on other things when literally lives are being lost uh, in, for no reason. And we have to make sure it's not in vain and continue to be their voice. But just it's just heartbreaking looking at his picture, such a young man, um, unfairly having his life taken from him. Um, so I will try my best to continue and even maintain a level of respect and reverence because of what he has just had to go through. His family, we, we send, of course, our condolences and love to all those who loved him. Um, it's very, very sad, uh, unimaginable what they're going through. And, um, yeah, so I, I will do the show um, with him in mind and most books or any book won't be able to um, be a good segue or to change subjects into there are some parallels that I will try to draw again this is just newer news but it's hard not to think of him and um, the book that I will be discussing tonight is uh, Frederick Nietzsche's book Ecce Homo I think it's Ecce Homo uh, which is essentially his Autobiogra autobiography, one of the last books that he wrote um, shortly uh, before. Some say he went mad, um, but, but the title means How One Becomes What One Is. And so it's his his uh, description of himself, his life, um, a lot of his works, and that's why, as I was saying, there's some relevance to what's happening because something that he, uh, he challenged so many people, great thinkers, um, of his time and before, but also religion. And he uh, talks about in this book, Unmasking Christian, uh, Christian Morality. And so the part that seems very relevant is um, the 
what we've seen throughout history and unfortunately continue to see and what we're seeing in Iran, people using religion and saying they're being holy and moral and doing everything good while they do the most unspeakable things to people and are doing nothing. Even if you believe in God, it's all ungodly what they do, but they're saying they are the ones who are right. But really we see that it's just um, to maintain their power. There's no real issue of doing the right thing or morality or justice in what's happening. And so Nietzsche was very opposed to uh, the ways that people who are religious are praised or the ways that, let's say, priests are when they're doing some of the worst things. And so um, he talks about that in this book as well as he goes through the different things that he he did in his work and who he is and how he became um, who he is and uh, what that even means. So he, I'll get into that again about religion. Um, I'll talk a bit more about the book itself. When you look at it, there's a lot of very, Nietzsche was very dramatic in his writing and that it was very to the point. Um, he didn't mince words. He said what he thought. He wasn't afraid to attack anyone. And even he talks about that, that he didn't attack in a personal way. It wasn't personal for him. He doesn't have ill will. He's just essentially attacking the ideas and ideologies that he disagrees with. So he says it's actually with respect even if it comes off very scathing and um, aggressive. Uh, but in the first chapters are about himself and some of how he became who he is, as the, the title implies. And scholars, I read a, an introduction and some other thoughts on it, they say that we can take some of what he says in, that it's in jest. It's kind of like an exaggeration. And I'll, you know, for example, the first chapters are things like, why I am so wise why I am so clever, why I write such good books. And there's a lot of very bombastic language in there about his greatness. It does seem like some of it likely is what he thought and felt about himself, even talking about people remembering him or talking about him um, for millennia, and also that he was ahead of his time. So he talks about how people, he doesn't expect his contemporaries to understand him or to be able to really get the depth of his writing, even if they do read it. So he talks often about this uh, disparaging view of people and also about his own Germany and Germans and the German culture. I get the sense reading it that it would have been anyone he was surrounded by, he would have found um, the negative or the wrong in them and seeing what could be more right. But throughout the book, you see him talking uh, negatively about German uh, people and German culture, his own um countrymen. So those title, those chapters, as I said, they're very, can sound very uh, narcissistic. And I think there's something to them that he really felt. He saw his own wisdom, uh, but there's a ways where he's mocking himself at times also. And in some ways he wasn't wrong. It's only been, it hasn't been millennia yet, but he's one of the most um, read or discussed philosophers. So he did make huge contributions uh, to to our understanding of, of things, of knowledge and, and philosophy. So um, I mentioned actually the last book I read, how it brought up this book and how he discusses many things. And in those parts about just talking about who he was, he, he discusses the importance or how he became who he, he is, um, the importance of what we might consider small things like climate and diet and your surroundings and how those are actually 
very important and we should not underestimate them, especially to do, as he talks about, the intense type of work that he did, the mental type of work that he had to go through or he wanted to go through. You have to be of uh, keep yourself in the best condition possible. And I thought that was uh, interesting. So in a way, someone might look at that and say, oh, you're being so sensitive that you need to worry about the climate and what you're eating and things to do your work or to do uh, do that work. But he's saying essentially that the work, when you're doing it, it's so intense, you need to make sure you, that is the instrument, is in the best condition possible, which does actually make sense. So if you had an athlete about to perform, we would want to make sure their physical body was in the best shape possible. They got the rest they needed, the nutrients they needed. And so similarly, even if you're doing a mental type of exercise or mental uh, challenge, you want to make sure you are in the best shape possible so that you can do the best work possible. So I found that interesting that although there's at times this arrogance of how he talks about things, there's this way of a sensitivity and he shares that, that he had that and, and really to pick up on things you need to be sensitive. And he was clearly someone who picked up on so much um, about the world and what was not right about the world. So I thought that was uh, quite interesting. Then he goes through some of his major works and some of it is about when he wrote them or what he was going through when he wrote them or some thoughts on what he wrote and, and discussing that in different ways. So um, like human, all too human. And actually, I should make a note that I think if you really want to understand this book, you would have to have read all of these books, which I have not read. So these chapters, I read them, but because I had not read the works themselves that he's discussing, I did at times go back and look them up to understand a bit about them, but it made it harder for me to get as much as I would have had I read those um, books and works that he was discussing and in, in his own uh, process in them. Um, one of his most famous books, uh, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, which is actually based on Zoroaster, which is like a type of fiction, in a way philosophical fiction, discussing his character, but it's based on Zoroaster, and it's one of his most famous works, and he discusses that throughout the book a lot, so it does seem one that I, you, you could tell he is quite proud of, um, that work and what he contributed. Going back to that um, discussion of how all the things that surround us, the climate, your diet, the experiences you're having impact you, before I came here, I just mentioned I did hear that horrific, heartbreaking news, so that put me even in a worse place. Uh, mentally, uh, you know, emotionally than I, I was before, and even to discuss problems compared to hearing that kind of news. But I did realize as I was driving to the studio, I had just had to go through this phone call, and I won't even get into that. And again, it it's um, trivial to even mention compared to what's going on, just a frustrating phone call. And I realized that it put me not in the best place because I was still frustrated with the phone call. I had this um, stress from that upset feelings, angry, and I realized even walking into the studio that I already wasn't at my best, and I thought that was fitting that I was reading this book, and one aspect of the book was how important it is to maintain those yourself in those ways, um, and how I knew I was not at my, my fullest, and then to hear the news um, of what's happening in Iran, of course, made me even more heartbroken, so to learn of um, Mohammad Robotlu's execution. Uh, put me in even a, a different state 
because of that. And so when I read where I was thinking of discussing this, of course, I didn't know that news yet. I realized that I was feeling that, not that it was a surprise of how significant it is. And when we are trying to do uh, even our best type of work, whatever it is, we we want to make sure we're okay or we're going to be impacted by what's happening around us. How could we not be? Uh, to end the discussion, he mentions, as I said, a lot of his work throughout the book. And the last chapter is called Why I Am Destiny. And at the end, he brings up again his, as I said, uh, and as he puts it, the unmasking of Christian morality. He says the unmasking of Christian morality is an event without equal, a real catastrophe. So he considered that a big, uh, a big contribution, although he calls it a, a catastrophe. And then he talked a bit about some of the things that religion has done, and I thought they were um, quite fascinating. So he says the concept God invented as the antithetical concept to life, everything harmful, noxious, slanderous, the whole mortal enmity against life brought into one terrible unity. The concept, the beyond, real world, invented so as to deprive of value the only world which exists, so as to leave over no goal, no reason, no task for our earthly reality. The concept soul, spirit, Finally, even immortal soul, invented so as to despise the body, so as to make it sick. Holy, so as to bring to all the things in life which deserve serious attention, the questions of nutriment, residence, cleanliness, weather, a horrifying frivolity. So I found that just in a few sentences there, he captured some very um, important concepts that puts them really only as he could. Uh, things like even the concept of a soul, and he's saying how that actually makes us despise or devalue the bodies we actually have, that we we physically have, or even the beyond and this other world, how it makes us actually um, lose value for the world that we actually have. He said the only world which exists, and also holy, and how that can make us devalue certain things, again, going back to those things like nutriment, residence, cleanliness, weather, and making them frivolous. I thought that was a uh, fascinating, uh, just in a few sentences, what he was able to capture there. And so I, I've read some of his work before, but not in as much detail as I, I would like after especially reading this. And this was the first full book of his that I'd completed. Um, but very likely I will read more of his work and you see how um, his wisdom and just the penetrating way he discusses concepts. And there's a fearlessness in how he writes, which I think is quite commendable, and why he was able to make such an impact, things which he discusses in this book. That was Ecce Homo by Friedrich Nietzsche. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Um, Based on just things I've already discussed in the first segment, trying to think of what I would discuss, and again, it's with a very heavy heart, I, I continue the show, um, and since issues of morality and religious morality came up in the book this, that I read this, uh, by Friedrich Nietzsche, um, it just made me think again of trying to think for ourselves. And so it's interesting, in the book he discussed even and I had to take this in a way personally, but it was interesting for me, 
that even when one is trying to think about things or come up with their ideas, it wasn't exactly said that way, but that's something I took from it, that you shouldn't expose yourself to anything, going back to being aware of your, your surroundings and things like cleanliness, the weather, what you eat, um, even talking to people. So he, he seems that at times when he would write, he would not want to converse with anyone because in a way it would uh, impurify his thoughts or get in the way. And even he talked about reading. That's the part where I was in a way half joking, definitely just half, but that even reading is not good in some ways or always good. Or he would say for months, he wouldn't read anything. Um, and I thought that was interesting. And, you know, some of it could be in jest. Some of it could be also him saying that, well, he already knows. So he would only learn something not good or not true from, from other people or from other books or works, wherever they uh, might be, who wrote the books. Um, but there's something, you know, to that. And as I prepare for the show, I read the book and then I also will usually look up some things related to the book, just some background. Sometimes I discuss it, sometimes just for myself, sometimes about the author, um, and then sometimes people's thoughts about the book. And that's where I, I kind of had to laugh at myself because uh, Nietzsche is talking about not going to others in a way to, to, to help us understand something. But here I was trying to go to others to help understand him and his writing. I still think I would do that because his writing is very uh, complex and there again his uh, allusions to book he's written in the past. But anyway, it was kind of funny for me. I laughed to myself as I was reading other people's thoughts on him. Um, and his his work. So, uh, you know, there's this part that he shares from uh, Thus Spake Zarathustra, where he says, you say you had not yet sought yourselves when you found me. Thus do all believers, therefore all belief is of so little account. You had not yet sought yourselves when you found me. So he's saying you found me, but you haven't even found yourselves or understood yourselves. And I thought that was a uh, interesting way of putting it. And also it says, well, that if people who believe it doesn't necessarily mean much because let's say a, a million people, a billion people, two billion people believe something. If they don't even know themselves or understand themselves, what value is their belief? And so we come to this challenging issue of trying to understand what's right, what's wrong, uh, morality, justice, and these are all huge moral or, or philosophical types of discussions, and I won't be able to discuss them all, just also I don't know enough to discuss them or have a full grasp on it, but always the sense of trying to understand what's right and wrong, and there's lots of things we, we can do related to that. One is, we, we talk about our gut feeling, you know, you'll say something didn't quite feel right, uh, and I think there's a lot of value there, sometimes undermined and sometimes overvalued which often is the case. So sometimes it's like, well, no, it doesn't matter what you feel. It's only about looking at it in a um, intellectual way or rational thought. But I think there is something to our intuition that has value and we should not ignore it. But on the other hand, I don't think it's infallible that we can also have gut feelings that are very wrong. And I think it's very hard to differentiate between this. Sometimes people talk about this as good intuition and a bad intuition. Because, for example, if you've had bad experiences with certain people, you're going to judge them negatively. Or we can even look at something like racism. People might think, well, you know, I have a gut feeling that says I don't like these people. It must be something real because I feel something so real. When we know that um, 
the, the information you get exposed to, cultural values and norms, things you hear, things you see in the media, all these things are going to impact how you feel about a certain group of people, even one individual, whatever it might be, gets impacted by all of these things. And so we're in this constant co-creation where something is happening within us and we have our own ability to feel and think, but also what we feel and think is impacted by what's happening on the outside. So I say co-created because, of course, even that had to be created from something. What's on the outside was created by people, previous people also, but also the current people of the world. They create what we are exposed to, which then impacts what we feel internally, but also what we can think and reflect on could then be put out and change what is happening outside. So even Nietzsche is trying to change the ways that people think about things and feel about things and what they do, the things that he thinks are wrong. So he internally is, has or did reflected on these things, had his thoughts and then shared those um, with the world. And so I think we, we all have that duty to think and reflect and to then share that with others. Not that we have the truth or that we know something that has to be true. And even as I say that Nietzsche was so forceful and I'm saying it in a less forceful way, or I'm even saying to be not so forceful. So something I, I'll continue to, to wrestle with or try to understand. But to share our way of thinking is important. But the first part is to think for yourself. And this is something really critical for me. And so uh, as I do this show, I share my, sometimes it's knowledge about things, but also often it's my opinion about things, the way I think about things. And as I was just saying a minute ago, sometimes I wonder, can I say it more forcefully? And there's something definitely there for me to think about and look at. And I, de I, I do that. Uh, but I also think how I, I really value not making judgments for other people or doing the thinking for other people. And so we often are looking for that because we are so uh, uncertain. But that uncertainty to me is part of our actual human experience. We can't be certain about most things, um, especially sometimes, for example, something like religion or God, people want certainty. Well, you, you can't have that when we're talking about those kinds of questions. There is no certainty that there's that God does not exist or does exist. But if someone says, I have arguments that proves one or the other, they'll get a lot of attention because people are hoping to get that certainty. And so with other questions too, people feel comforted if they get certainty from someone. So if they someone tells them, I know the answers about this, that, and the other thing, they feel really good if they can feel that they trust that person. And so we see throughout history and religion is one form of that, but it's others too, great thinkers, even Nietzsche himself. And he, he talks about this in, in a way. So there is this way of saying he's so great and wise and he's figured out these things, but he also doesn't want to be obeyed or become like an idol either. And, and so it seems like there's almost a mixed feeling there or something where he wants the ideas or things he's saying to be valued, but not for him himself to be um, created into this type of idol. I think that's valuable. But there is ways that I'm sure people look at him or people will use, well, you know, Nietzsche said this, so it must be true. And it's challenging because, yes, if someone is a wise person or someone has, especially if they're an expert in a certain field, we want to take their information in a weighted fashion so it has more weight to it. But the problem is when we think that that means they can't be wrong and we approach in that way. 
And this is another aspect of certainty, that it feels a lot better if we think that the person we're listening to, I want to trust them and listen to them, and everything they say is right, and I don't have to even think about it anymore. And that's, again, another form that religion takes, that I don't have to think about it critically, I can take it in and just trust that this is the right way to do things, this is the way that God wants me to act, and if I do this, I'm a good person, if I don't, I'm a bad person. And so we look for that certainty because it's so calming, you know, even in a, in a smaller scale, but still significant with parenting, let's say, people will ask me or ask any type of psychologist, uh, well, yeah, what do you do with parenting? And they want something definitive, that if you do this, it'll be good for your kids. And if you do that, it'll be bad. So if you do this, everything will be fine. And there are definitely, um, there's definitely information, knowledge, techniques, lots of things there that the fields of child development, parenting have have given us, but it's nothing definitive that we can say this is definitely the right thing, especially the right thing for your specific child and for that situation. It, it can't be that definitive, but we want that. You know, sometimes when I'm talking with parents and giving them some feedbacks, you know, say, well, yeah, this is good. So should I encourage them or not encourage them? You know, people want this. Should I always do this or never do this? Give me the black and white answer because that is comforting. That's easy to follow. Then I know I'm doing the right thing every time and I don't have to worry about it. But I wish I could give them that just like I wish I could say that to myself about all aspects of life. But it's just not true. There isn't a, you know, no one could do the thinking for you. And you also can never stop thinking or evaluating things. You never are finished figuring it out that if I just do this and this and this, it's always right. The world is changing, you are changing, the situations around you are changing, the people around you are changing. So we can't just try to find just one way of doing anything, even let alone everything, and think we've figured it out. So we have to be ready to live in this uncertainty. And if we can accept that, it's by its nature anxiety-provoking. Certainty gives us calm. Uncertainty gives us anxiety, makes us feel uh, not good about things. But to really live in the world, we have to tolerate all sorts of uncertainty on a constant basis. Most of it doesn't even cross our minds, and that's probably a good thing. You just experience your day, you're walking, not thinking, well, something could fall on me right now. A million things can happen. When someone is like that, we consider them having um, anxiety or paranoia. But the things they often worry about, if we're not talking about like a paranoid delusion, but the things they worry about are things that are possible. So if someone is anxious on a plane, planes can crash it is possible but to function in life and if you want to travel on a plane you have to accept that i'm going to go on this plane and have faith in it and trust in it that's all you can do you have very little control after that so to function in life we have to actually be able to constantly live with this uncertainty it's not something that ever goes away and yes in some areas we might feel more certainty or feel better about it but everything we experience will have that. And if we can understand that that is the norm, that that is the reality, that can help us in tolerating it in the sense that it still doesn't feel good. We'd rather know for sure, 100% sure that this means this, that this is the right thing, this is the wrong thing, or if you do this, you'll get exactly this outcome. That would feel really nice, and we are seeking that. But if we realize how much that is not possible, and that if we try to do that or seek that too much, we will likely either fool ourselves in different ways and find mental gymnastics to try to trick ourselves, or we're more likely to fall for the tricks of other people because people are constantly trying to sell us certainty. 
I have the answers for this. Come to me and I'll fix your problems. I know exactly the truth about this thing. If you listen to me, you'll know the truth. And those people get very successful because people are so looking for that certainty that they don't mind even when things are disconfirming or sometimes the person says something that turns out to be wrong, we find a way to justify it. Just like we see happen, for example, in cults. They make a prediction that the aliens are going to come and take us to their planet on this date. And that date comes and nothing happens and people find ways to justify how it's still true. No, this is the truth. I'm certain of it. it. This is just the aliens' way of testing us to make sure we are really holy people and really faithful to them, that we have to do this. And so we find a way to, to feel that we are still certain, that we don't have to shake the way we think th about things or feel about things. So some of those things are a bit interconnected, not the same thing, but it does come back to the sense of accepting uncertainty. And the more we can tolerate that, the less susceptible we are to finding these types of conclusions or finding people that are so conclusive that think they have the answers. We, we see it so much on social media. People are giving these very definitive answers and they get a lot of attention because people like that feeling of, okay, if someone tells me exactly what's right and 100% of the time this is going to happen, that feels good. Rather than the reality of most things is that we don't quite know. So we can express and explore different things going on with something, but we can't say something for sure. People don't like that because it leaves them feeling that feeling of uncertainty is anxiety, but the feeling of certainty gives us a sense of calm. So if we can let go of that, we're in a much better situation to accurately understand the world, ourselves, and what's happening around us. Okay, let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to end the show, continuing on some of the themes that have come up. Um, wanted to discuss some concepts, power, um, authority, and responsibility, and some ways that they relate and some values that I think are important related to them. So in order to function as a society, in order for, even if we, let's talk about a, a classroom, let's put in a smaller scale. For things to go well, we need some type of structure and we also need some level of authority. So in this classroom example, we need a teacher and the teacher has more power than the students in, and also we can say authority in that they can make certain decisions that are more final. They have sometimes they can do things that the students can't do. For example, they can walk outside or they might be able to use certain things in the, in the, in the classroom that the students might not be able to use. Um, of course, they also will teach the class and do certain things. But there is a certain authority and power that we understandably need to give to the teacher in order for them to function and to create a better classroom experience even for the students. And so where I think is very important to be mindful of, or what I think is very important to be mindful of, is the distinction that you have a certain power or authority that's given to you, and even authority might be better than power, you have a certain authority, but this does not mean you are in some ways entitled to something outside of that. And what's important is that you're using your authority 
in service of what you are doing. So when you are a teacher and you get some power and authority because of that, you have to be very mindful that you use that power and authority in service of the students, not in service of yourself. So it's not so you get to feel good that you're the one in control and you're the one that can do certain things and talk a certain way to the kids, but actually that you are using your authority because you want to teach the children the best that you can, to give the children the best experience that you can. And so it's important that you have that authority. You can't just say, well, everyone talks whenever they want all at once. No, you create some order. Okay, I will talk and I'll raise your hand. I will call on you and you can speak and we want to hear everyone's voices. But to maintain order, this is the way things go. I will be the one that can talk above others. I won't use that for myself, but just to maintain order. And I will call on you, but not I get to call on you. So I'm the one with the power. And we have to be careful because it's easy for us to go there. We all will go there unless we check our own power. We will always have that tendency to go towards how good it feels to have this power and this authority unless we are very mindful of it, that I'm given this. It's a gift I'm given to give to these children in this case to teach the class the best way that I can. So giving another analogy of, let's say, flying, we want a pilot or the pilots, let's say there's just two, I'm sure it's a whole crew of people that are involved, let's say the two, the, the two co-pilots, we want them to have the full authority of flying the plane. It's not everyone can say, hey, uh, I want to go up a little bit, I want to go down. Actually, this was a really funny experience I had just, um, I think like a month or two ago on a flight where we were hitting some pretty bad turbulence and uh, this guy behind me said that, um, told the flight attendant, you know, I'm looking on my app and it says that there would be less turbulence if we were flying lower. And the flight attendant kind of almost laughed. I mean, was frustrated and laughed said, so you want me to tell the pilot that your app is saying for us to fly at some other altitude? And the person I think realized how ridiculous what they're saying was and said, oh yeah, just, uh, you know, and just kind of at that point ended it. But um, we don't want that. We don't need all the passengers on a plane to be involved in the flying of the plane. We, we leave that um, authority. And it's also going back now this responsibility. They have a responsibility to fly the plane. And so because of that, we do give them certain rights. Okay, they can go somewhere that no one else can on the plane. Let's make sure they're taken care of. Uh, I'd rather the pilot is comfortable than I'm comfortable. So I want to make sure they, I'd rather their area is, is somewhere where they feel comfortable and they're taken care of. And if they need food and drink, they're taken care of in a good way because they are responsible for everyone else. So we give them that authority. And with that might come those types of benefits, those kind of perks where they, um, you know, get taken care of in a certain way, but it's in service of this responsibility of taking care of us to make sure we get to our destination safely and as peacefully as possible and with the least turbulence. And I'll trust the pilots to figure that out along with their crew, um, rather than passengers on the plane. So we want to be aware of even how we create our systems where when people are given a position that has some kind of power and authority, that the power, authority, the perks that they get are in service of their responsibility, not in service of making them feel good. Unfortunately, what we see in so many spheres of the world, and including especially politics, is people go into politics because they like what they get from it. They get lots of perks. They get seen in a certain way. 
here in the United States. If you get elected to certain offices and afterwards, you can make lots of money doing certain things. If when you're in office, you can do certain things that will make you lots of money. And so there's all these perks that come. And of course, that's going to attract the wrong kind of person. They go for power. They go for money. They go for attention, not for being, as it's called, in public service. We talk, call it that, but that's not what they're there. They're really generally serving themselves. The intention isn't to serve, it's to be served. And that is not good. So we have to look at the system and say, okay, well, how are we creating the right kind of system where people who are drawn to this or the person who's in that position is more likely to be doing it for the right reasons and not for themselves. I'll switch gears to a sphere that is in some ways the most precarious when it comes to this power dynamic, and that is being a parent. Because when you are a parent, when you talk about unchecked power, you have completely unchecked power with your children. I mean, let's say you have two parents, of course, you might check each other in some way. But if you're one parent, or especially even if you're just on the same page about how you do things, you have all the power, authority, you definitely have the responsibility, but definitely you have this power and authority. And even we can say there's a way that we realize that this is unchecked or we realize that children are so vulnerable, which is why someone like me, who is a, a, a therapist and so many other um, professions, including teachers who I was mentioning, in the United States, there are what we call mandated reporters for child abuse. So if you even suspect that a child is being abused by anyone, but often it can be parents or someone that is close to them, you have to report it because we can see there's such a vulnerable situation and position that the children are in. So just by its nature, parenthood creates this huge power differential. It is has to have that. And again, going back to what I was saying with the teacher, it's important that the parents do have authority and do take control of that. They should be the ones in control, not just, hey, you know, a two-year-old, you're going to decide everything as much as I am. Yes, we want to hear their voice, make them feel that they're understood. But at the end of the day, the parent has to be the adult in the room, so to speak, and make certain decisions that are in the best interests of the child. So again, they use that power, they use that authority, not because they want to have a power trip, but because they will do what they think is best for the child. It's in service of the child. So as a parent, you have to check your own power because it's very easy to fall into this trap of using that as a way of feeling good, feeling control. Actually, related to the previous segment about uncertainty and wanting control, it feels good to be in control of, of something. That's why power can feel so good, and we have to be aware of that. It's like a drug, and so if you're not careful about how you're taking in a drug, you can probably take too much of it and get too high. And so that's what we see happens. So as a parent, you have to be very aware of, okay, I'm in this dynamic. And you see it. And sometimes parents very clearly are using that to make themselves feel better. They might not feel good about how they function in the world, but then they come to this relationship where they completely have the power and they unfortunately will abuse it because it'll make them feel better. So whenever we are given power, we have to be very careful that we don't use it the wrong way. And by that, I mean we have to make sure we're using it in service of whatever role we have been given to do, not as something that serves us. So I'm serving others, I'm serving the situation, not my myself. I say the situation because let's say even the pilot, of course, uh, they will get there safely too if they 
fly the plane better, so they benefit from it as well. But it's their responsibility to um, everyone on the plane to make sure they they do the best they can. So that's what I mean by the situation. So when you're given power, be very aware of it. How am I using it? But also when we create systems and structures, being very mindful of this way that we create things. What The way the world generally works is the people who are given some kind of authority or then given some kind of extra perks and we think things like respect comes up. Well, if someone is this, we have to respect them in this way. And often that kind of respect means giving them things that doesn't make sense, that's not related to um, being in power. So, for example, a, a politician, and we think they have to be treated with some kind of respect when they're a public service, doesn't mean we disrespect them, but it doesn't mean that they should be given added perks because of that. They're they're choosing to do a service that's wonderful, and the focus should be on that, not on how it's serving them. And if not, they're going to find themselves um, getting drunk with power and becoming uh, exactly what their position is not supposed to do, serving themselves rather than other people. And so this is why there is that uh, well-known adage that absolute power corrupts absolutely, that when we give someone complete power that's unchecked, it will corrupt us. And this is a, it is like a poison. So you might think, well, no, if I was given power, I would not, I'm, I'm a good person, I'm kind, I'm selfless. I would not take advantage of that power. But the truth is we all will do that. We all would take advantage if there was really no consequences to it. I don't mean every single time always, but we have to be aware that if you are given unchecked power, you are likely to abuse it. And that's because you're human. And so you don't have to think you're above that. You have to just realize this, that's just how it is. So we would hope that if someone is going to be the, the ruler of a country and the law said that the ruler of that country can do whatever they want and could harm people and even kill people and they wouldn't be punished for it, even if it wasn't related to their job, we would hope that that ruler would want to change that rule. Unfortunately, they usually wanted that power, which is why they went there. But that would be what we would hope, is that they recognize that I shouldn't have any power that's unrelated to my role and my responsibility. That is not necessary, not something I should have. And especially I shouldn't have some kind of unchecked power where I um, can hurt others or do something bad. And just because I have this position, I get to be... Uh, exonerated, or I have some kind of immunity. And so what we see um, in in most countries is the governments, they want to hold on to their power more than they want to help the people. And so if we look at the government of Iran, what we see right now is that the, the government, they might pretend they are, and going back to things about religion, say that they're doing the holy things. But it's very, very clear that it is only in service of their own power, not in service of the people, or it's in the service of themselves, not in service of the citizens of that country that the decisions are being made. And so we see how tightly people will cling to power. Of course, uh, when you have a corrupt government, they cling even more tightly. One, will they're corrupt, so they likely want to do the, the bad things they're doing to continue that, but also because they know they've done such bad things that once it comes to light or once the reality and justice is revealed, they will be punished swiftly and severely. And so they will try to avoid that as, as much as they can. They have created lots of enemies because they've done wrong things. They've done bad things. So sadly, we see that even executing a 23-year-old man 
um, can be seen as somehow okay. And they'll say certain things of what they believe and waging war on morality and, you know, these um, extreme accusations when really the bottom line is maintaining their own power. And so to conclude, just this thought that if your power is not in service of others and it's in service of yourself, um, you are a very weak person that is coming um, from weakness when we fight for that. I did say it corrupts us all, but when we see you fighting to maintain that power and even willing, willing to kill young individuals to maintain that power, that is very weak. There's nothing strong about that power at all. And the world would be much better without you having that level of authority or any kind of authority. And so to conclude tonight again, um, in this last, well, it's not just recently, but we've had to deal with so much sad news coming out of Iran. But unfortunately today, um, we got more sad news of the execution of Mohammad Gobadlu. Uh, again, condolences to his whole family and those who loved him and just heartbreaking to see another young individual killed by this government. Um, hopefully we will continue to amplify their, their voices and their stories. But heartbroken as I conclude the show tonight. A big thank you to Farhuda here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Farid Alakwi. Zan Zendegi Azadi. <laughs>